Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you are in the field, the academy, or the clergy. In today's episode, Hector Herrera and Stephen Detroyo talk to Dr. Patrick Reyes about his journey into theological education. For more information about today's talk, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to Open Plaza podcast. My name is Stephen DiTrolio. Today I'm joined by Patrick Reyes, uh, Director of Strategic Partnership for the Doctoral Initiative, part of the Forum for Theological Exploration. And I'm also joined by a coworker of mine, Hector Herrera. And today we're just going to talk a little bit about creating the conditions for scholars of color to thrive. So welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this, this morning, almost afternoon. So how did your journey in theological education begin? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, I've talked about this a little bit in my book. I was working, I just finished up my undergraduate studies at uh, Sac State, um, which is in, you know, California State University, Sacramento. And I had moved back home, and I, the first job I got was working on the uh, assembly line um, at night, packing, uh, yeah, vegetables, little party platters that you got. And um, there was a Bible study that was happening. So this shift was from like 9 p.m. till like 6 a.m. And there was a pastor who came in and did Bible study with us, a uh, Methodist pastor. And she said after a while, after knowing that I kind of I like reading and I was justice oriented, doing some organizing work, said you should check out this place called BU. Um, and it was her alma mater and, uh, you know, School of the Prophets or whatever. Sh- I should think about doing that. So she kind of kicked me off into theological education and sent me to uh, Boston and uh, you know, being a Reyes, no one in my family had left California or Mexico for, you know, several hundred years. Like we've been there for, for a minute. Um, so, uh, she kind of inspired me and mm-hmm. kind of pushed me in this direction. So I never really consider it. And then, um, what was that transition like? It was horrible. Uh, you know, it's one of those things they don't tell you when you go out to, uh, anywhere that's got winter when you don't have it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I still remember the first day I was out there making snow angels like this is the coolest thing ever because, you know, in California, you can drive to the mountains and enjoy snow, uh, but living it every day is something else. So when the snow didn't go away, when I woke up the next morning, I was pretty angry. Yeah. So uh, the the culture was different. The weather was different. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I have to say this. Latinos were not made for for winter at all. Mm. At um, all. It's not in our blood. No. So d- d- despite all the education stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The weather kicked my butt. Yeah. And so what, uh, what what did you end up doing out of school? Uh, so I did my MDiv, um, and I was organizing at the time, too, all through my uh, MDiv. And I was really looking at uh, pursuing a Ph.D. I was uh, inspired by a couple professors while I was out there to think about it, to do it. I looked at two programs. One program um, was – and both were in California because I want to get back home. Um, and the one that I ended up going with was in Southern California. I went to Claremont School of Theology to do my PhD. And part of that was all the races, uh, specifically my grandma was in, is in Bakersfield, California, and I wanted to be close to her. Um, so I moved back home um, essentially to do that work while we were there. And the uh, sad uh, part of all this is the week that my doctoral s- program started, um, uh, my grandmother passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I was back out in California doing this to be close to her. And um, and she was kind of my inspiration. She she really, uh, yeah, kept our whole family together and kept me alive and was so proud of me all throughout my education stuff. I lived with her in college and undergrad. Um, so I was, with, yeah, I moved out 
um, lost my grandma and was uh, discerning whether or not I should stay in the PhD. Um, and then about two weeks in, I was telling my advisor this. I said, I'm done. I, I can't do this. This is uh, a waste of my time. Academics isn't my thing. You know, doing the, going through the whole grief and remorse process of this seven-year commitment I had made. And my advisor at the time said, if you can just hold on one more week, I got someone I, I want you to meet. Um, and it was Elizabeth Conde Frazier mm -hmm. uh, who came out to do a guest lecture. And uh, God bless her. She gave me a whole afternoon. Um, she was coming out to do a lecture. She sat with me after a little lunch uh, presentation she did for a couple hours out in the thing, prayed over me at the end, said, we got to do this on behalf of our of our people um, and inspired me to stick with it. So, you know, thank God for those elders that, you know, call us to life in those kind of moments where we're thinking about doing otherwise and they call us to something better. Mm -hmm. Totally. How did um, her influence um, affect your work? Yeah. So, I mean, she's, she is the elder of elders in our community, man. Like, uh, not just her person is, uh, uh, if you've been around Elizabeth, I mean, she, she's, she holds the kind of the same thing my grandmother did for our, our family, holds us together, calls us to life, you know, asks us not just about our academic work, but, you know, well, how's your family doing, um, which makes all the difference. Um, and then her work, I'm a, I did religious education, and she was actually at Claremont beforehand um, teaching in that program. So her work has informed uh in mine incredibly in the focus on the Latino community, thinking about how we um, create conditions for our own communities to thrive. Um, yeah, she's probably my number one citation uh, in, in my dissertation, in my articles. Um, and now I, you know, I have the pleasure at FTE, um, she's on her board too. So, I, you know, the threads continue to overlap and um, I'm so grateful for, for everything that she's given, yeah. So one of the articles that I read was uh, a report done by FTE yeah. in 2018 called uh, Creating the Conditions for Scholars of Color to Thrive. So it kind of delineates a few issues and kind of talking about a process between, I think, 107 leaders. No, there was. Yeah, we had about 56 leaders. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally off. With no, the that's numbers. all right. You can double up the numbers. Yeah. I mean, if Trump <laughs> I, can I make, you know, 300 <laughs> into a couple I, million, I thought, I'll I thought take it an extra was. 50. I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I had read 100, and it took place in Denver. Yeah, yeah. And if you could just kind of describe what the theological landscape of theological education kind of looks like right now. Yeah. Um, well, d for that consultation, um, we had uh, philanthropy in the room, uh, accrediting bodies, so the folks who accredit these programs, deans and presidents, faculty and students of color, and partners in equity and access. Um, and what we were kind of trying to think about is what does it mean to create conditions for scholars of color to thrive in these moments? So your very question, um, in the changing landscape, higher education's in greater flux, you know, almost 50%, at least in our fields, ARSBL is telling us in the jobs report that almost 50% of folks who are members are contingent faculty, those who are beyond their PhD program. Um, folks aren't being hired in the same rates that they were uh, previously. Um, so if you're talking about Latinos in particular, uh, Latinas are the least represented via the population of any racial ethnic group. Um, so we are looking at an uphill battle. Um, and you know, one of the sad uh, kind of statistics in that report is um, over the last 20 years, percentage gain. So percentage of API folks, African-Americans, Latinos, First Nations, um, we, we haven't made any gains in percentage of faculty members. Um, in total numbers, yes, but um, you know, uh, percentage-wise, we're kind of steady for the last 20 years. Um, so that's a challenge for us. I mean, how do you create conditions for scholars of color or the next generation to thrive 
if uh, the people teaching our classes don't look like you, sound like you. Um, and one you of the things it mentions is even financial aid debt. Oh my gosh, financial aid, yes. As an inhibiting factor for yes. people of color to even get into the academy. Yes, African Americans and Latinos are disproportionately in debt. Um, you know, almost 45 grand as they enter into their um, uh, programs, over 50%. And if you look at, um, you know, just from my own work, from the fellowship side, um, when we get our doctoral applications, we ask about financial need. And an average FT fellow who's applying or an after fellow applicant um, is looking at over $70,000 in uh, educational debt. And so uh, you mentioned that report. How do we create conditions? One of them, uh, one of the conditions for thriving mm -hmm. was financially secure. So how do we think about uh, creating conditions for scholars of color to thrive when they're $70,000 plus in debt? From the uh, get-go. Just from the get-go, just from education debt. I mean, that doesn't include housing or anything else. Um, and that's, that's a challenge before us, especially in a changing market in higher education. Yeah. And even when you're there, what you're tasked to do is also doesn't really reflect people of color. Yes. I mean, you're thinking about like the invisible labor of uh, mentoring, for example. You know, faculty of color are almost uh, always tasked to do all the labor of people of color stuff. I mean, I could be a I could be a biblical studies uh, professor working on uh, whatever. I don't even know what they do. That's not my discipline. Uh, but I could be working on something. And if I'm a person of color, I'm still going to be called in for every diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. If a campus protest happens, I'm all, i got to be out on the front lines. Um, every student of color is going to come to me and say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. What do I do about this? And this is stuff that we don't train for in the academy at all, how to deal with that. Um, so, I mean, that yeah, the, the labor is, you know, uh, disproportionately on people of color to even do that emotional work um, on campuses. I was struck in the report. I think the terminology was the firsts and the onlys. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was that was some, you know I think it was the first yeah. uh, female uh, Korean dean yes. of an institution. And then there was the first and the onlys. Yes. It kind of doesn't seem like it's changed in the last fifty because it kind of looks back in the last fifty yeah. years, right? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things I will say is that things have changed in the last 50, uh, 50 years, and, you know, got to be grateful for those who were the first and onlys. Mm. Um, you know, you think about uh, liberation theologies, uh, um, you know, the theologies like Minjung theology, mm -hmm. uh, First Nation theology, you know, God is Red is all coming up on 50 years as well. Um, so you have all these publications in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Women's the theology is kind of emerging in the oh, 80s. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you have all of these kind of uh, great uh, thinkers that are establishing a canon, essentially, that the rest of us, um, us young folks, have been able to put into our, our bibliography. So, you mm -hmm. know, one of the things I'd say just in my four years being here at FTE, I read every application. I don't select the fellows, but I read every application. And I'm actually seeing bibliographies that are 100% in color, which was not the case my first year in here. So we're seeing that changes have been made. There's enough firsts and onlys that have gone through. So now uh, the idea is not to be to to want to be the first and only. Uh, you know, I, I try not to be the first and only in any room. You want to be part of a, a bigger movement where you're going as a cohort, um, as a larger movement of people of color into the academy. Uh, just statistics-wise, that's where the church and the academy is going to go anyway. So it's, you know, it's going to be in color. That's what really came through in that report. Um, but now it's how do we actually build that so that way we're able to do that as a community. The report outlines some points of action, yeah. of moving forward. Um, it's been a year out. Yeah. Where do you see those points of action? Are they working? Are they 
what, what how would you tweak maybe a year out from that report yeah some of the points of action or what are the points of action yeah well you know one of the things we try to do is uh, do a mind shift i mean part of that uh, consultation some of the work is to get um, academic leaders in all these programs in philanthropy and accreditation in institutions students and faculty as well um, to rethink the kind of mind shift away from programs you know it's always you the thing that uh, you can if you're uh, facing a diversity crisis in your institution, the first thing white folks do is let's throw together a lecture or a presentation and get you know the one person of color that we knew I went to school with and bring them on campus and we'll get everyone out. That way we can post it on the website and we look like we're doing stuff of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not that's not actually diversity and equity inclusion. The thing is changing mindsets and changing uh, like the deeper work. So if you think about, uh, for example, curriculums, um, you mm-hmm. know, getting doing a deep dive on a curriculum revision. Um, you know, not just a single faculty hire, but cluster hires is a new kind of uh, emerging practice in higher education. Um, and just for those of us who are in the academy, who are writing, to be really committed to being on behalf of our communities that extend beyond the academy. Um, it's easy once you're in the old boys club to mm-hmm. celebrate yourself and say, thank God I'm here. Um, now let's keep everyone else out. Um, th- it takes a special type of scholar, especially a scholar of color to say, you know, not I'm gonna, I'm gonna bust this thing open. Not just hold the door open, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a- academy about us and for us. I don't know who it was, um, but one of the participants talked about the leaking roof metaphor. Yes. And he talked about how in in the academy sometimes yes. we get the buckets and we're yeah. like, oh, we're so glad, you know, we got this bucket. And then you know they hire somebody to empty the bucket. Yes. And then well, we actually need bigger buckets. Yes. And so we get the bigger buckets. And then maybe an institution doesn't have the buckets or the person to empty the yeah. buckets, but it starts leaking the floor, so they start replacing the floor every yes. few years. And then, and I think his conclusion was, look, we really just need a new roof. Yes. And and I was very struck, kind of what you're describing, yeah. and, and that illustration I think describes really well, kind of these system changes. Yeah. Yeah. They're structural problems. I mean, that's what I think that that um, story was trying to get at was. Essentially, you know, the roof is a structural problem. It's get meant to keep us, and it's cheaper to hire someone to kind of mop the floor on the short run, mop the floor, mm-hmm. to put a bucket down. These are cheap, quick fixes, like programs, like a lecture series or a, you know, flashy new person that you get for a visiting professor. But the structural pro, uh, changes that we need in the higher education uh, for um, and by and with people of color are, are much deeper um, problems. And uh, and they can only be addressed as a collective. Um, you know, no one institution's got it right yet. Um, part of uh, that group and that consultation is Institutional Doctoral Network, which is nine institutions. Their deans, presidents, directors, doctoral programs participating in that to create conditions. They each have their own grant programs. And one of the things that we've been doing in FTE is just kind of creating space for them to do the work that they need to do on their campus for their institution. So we have uh, leaders who are thinking that work needs to happen at the board level. That work needs to happen at the faculty level. That needs to happen in student services and programs. Um, and what we're saying is yes to all of that. It needs to happen at every level. And what we want to do is curate the best practices out of all of that um, and share that knowledge and disseminate that knowledge about how do we do this work better. Absolutely. I really appreciate at the end you're telling, uh, you give a, a summary and you talk about the, the need not only to when you're going through your program you were talking about the need to implement scholars in the curriculum how important is that for for students the few students of color that there are in these religious 
predominantly white institutions. Yeah. Um, yeah. How how important was that for yourself in your formation? Yeah. And in the formation of uh, and now that you are now trying to shape and change yeah. institutions from from the inside out or from the yeah. outside in. I mean, it uh, from personal story. I mean, I I talk about. <coughs> In my master's program, I was in a I was in a class. I won't call them out because that they'll know who I'm talking about. But um, I had written a paper that had basically kind of revamped the assignment and said, "How do I take this back to Salinas?" Um, and I was trying to set the context for what was going on at the time, like gang violence, um, doing community analysis, and then applying theological praxis that um, and thinking to that context. And the feedback I got back was uh, that was not the assignment. Um, you need to read literally said you need to read more German thinkers because the class was kind of focused on this existentialist uh, thing and I had quoted a few folks that were in the syllabus mm-hmm. just to make sure I got a good grade pad the, pad, pad the bibliography yeah I was trying I was trying to show that I did your work and I have to do mine I mean that's one of the things mm-hmm. I say in my book is that um, you know we have to know our bibliographies and theirs mm-hmm. um, so we're you know we're tasked with knowing two different bibliographies anyway so I was trying to do this work and one of the things I, I was uh, deeply troubled by is the fact that um, I have to do that translation work, um, that I have to do a both and every single time for everything I do. And what I loved about the classes that really kind of activated me, activated me or mentors that activated me is that they said your uh, histories, your traditions, your practices are actually core curriculum. That's um, you absolutely need to do that work. And how do we take this back to our homes? Because if not, you know, I'm not really getting anything for me. I'm just trying to regurgitate what's good for someone else to say, mm-hmm. you know, give them a pat on the back. So it was about how to translate it to take it back home. And, uh, you know, seeing those moments where I'm able to do that, Mm -hmm. um, especially in uh, FTE, when we gather our doctoral students and we hear for the first time, it's a room full of scholars of color that uh, as uh, Stephen Ray, who's the president of Chicago Theological Seminary, said to uh, our students two years ago, uh, the white gaze is not in the room. That's so rare in higher education. Mm -hmm. Um, It's rare in theological education, but it's rare in higher education writ large. And when you remove that kind of white gaze and you're able to do the work and, and uh, mourn the losses of and the battle scars and wounds you have from uh, mm-hmm. navigating a primarily white institution in a white program mm. um, and really develop the skills and the muscles not only to handle that sort of trauma, but also to build the things that your communities need um, with the folks who care about it, and who, you know, they they share in their bones that mm-hmm. mission. Um, it's so exciting to know that there's folks out there and to be able to go through the full range of emotions that work takes. Um, so it absolutely is essential that we have these kind of spaces. And it's life-giving, transformative, just by the folks who are in the room, just mm. the knowing who's in the room. Wow. And that's like also in the direction of, you said, <clears throat> sometimes the community wants your narrative and, and they'll do the the theory. Yes. Oh, but my gosh. Yeah, but it seems now that in that in that space it's like we have the narrative and we could do the theory yes yeah. oh yeah i mean that so you're telling that that there's the story about my first academic post my yeah my uh, supervisor i had done all this work for a presentation on behalf of the university or at least out of our division and um he had heard me tell stories. I tell a lot of personal stories out of my community. That's kind of how my work goes. Even at FTE, that's, I mean, I, I tell a lot of stories. And, um, but I had written this big report, so we're going to share some of the findings from our report. And he walks in and says, how about I do the theory piece and you do the story piece? Because he was used to me telling the, you know, poor brown kid from Salinas 
story and he wanted to do that well this dude didn't even have a phd he didn't have any he, he didn't have any expertise in anything you know so he's thinking i mean like basically naming me as a white male um i can i can do that piece because that's what folks expect of me and people expect of you to tell the what was me tale and uh, that you know pissed me off to to no degree and so i mean you still see that happening in white institutions today where they want you to tell this particular narrative because it fits a certain development story arc or they want to be seen as doing a social justice charity model where look at we found this dude pat you know can can you believe we found him we saved him from salinas california we brought him into our institution look at him now he's thriving which is not the case i was doing fine in salinas too um so it's a really kind of like doing that kind of multiple level of work that has to happen both to like be able to handle those jackasses that are in our in our mm. field that are doing this kind of uh limiting of our potential and what we have to offer and stepping up and saying you know i'm i'm 100 qualified on all levels i can do the work that you're saying and actually you're kind of obsolete mm. um, which is a challenge to some white normative assumptions that happen in the academy and in in our society writ large yeah so one of the in in the um in the document, you say that white fragility yeah. gets in the way. Yes. Um, and I think that's kind of yes what you were just talking about. So yeah, Robin D'Angelo's work is great. I mean, I recommend it all to you know every you know white person I come across. Like, there's, it's not that you can't talk about race. It's not that you don't have a place at the table. It's just that the conversation needs to be nuanced. You need to understand. Uh, she's got this great line. I think on you know page four or five of her book it says something like white folks. Uh, especially white liberal folks will do everything they can to show that they know um, they'll take up as much space to show that they're above the conversation. And, uh, and that, that takes a lot of energy away from people of color trying to get work done from being like really good allies and moving that work forward. Um, so white fragility shows up in all kinds of ways. And I'll just say this too, this has been one of my kind of kicks in higher education. When I first came into the role, I thought, especially with changes in um, the U.S. I thought if I'm going to work on uh, behalf of my community and people of color writ large in the academy, one of the things I got to be prepared for is taking on white supremacy because that's happening across the country. It's something we're responding to in the news and all that stuff. And more and more, I'm realizing, okay, yes, that's true because those things are those narratives. Those folks are doing extreme violence. We need to do that. But in the academy. Um, what is actually creating a buffer between me and getting my work done is actually white mediocrity. Um, there's a lot of white mediocrity in our fields and our domains in higher education. Um, that's creating a buffer between uh, people of color and doing their, their best work from, from thriving. Um, and so now how, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with white mediocrity taking up as much space as it does? Um, and do I even have to? Is there a way to create alternatives where people of color can thrive where we don't even have to deal with that? Um, so that's been kind of the work at FT, trying to think through what does that look like in higher education in the academy. Tell us about uh, FTE, how you got involved. and Yeah, so I got started with FTE. Um, this would have been in 2014. We do So we do two pr primary things. You know, our uh, mission is to uh, cultivate young adults and doctoral students uh, to be wise, courageous, and faithful leaders for the church and the academy. Um, and we have the work that I do, which is primarily in doctoral theological education. That's about 25% of our portfolio. The other 75% is worth working with churches and young adults um, who are discerning their purpose and call and vocation. Um, so folks essentially who are uh, discerning a call to ministry. And we do these regional discernment retreats. So I, I was able to be invited to those. Um, you know, we get about 80 young adults who are discerning a call to ministry. It's a lot of fun. 
good food, yeah. good people, good young leaders good doing stuff. Yeah. So I was doing that kind of work. I called into there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I, I, you know, I've been really privileged to kind of work on both sides of the house, you know, because, uh, as a uh, running this, uh, doctoral program with a great team, you know, I got a great team with Elsie Barnhart and, um, our, our vice president, Matthew Wesley Williams, who just left um, to go be the interim president of the ITC in Atlanta. He's been there for 15 years. So I've just been blessed to be part of like a team of committed individuals. I've never felt like I've been around so many people who have shared mission and purpose, um, which is really unique in any field, in any domain. Absolutely. Um, so that's how I got involved. That's so awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. Thank you, Hector. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.